Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Amber Hughes. After Amber's sister Hannah passed away at the age of 38, after battling addiction and experiencing homelessness, Amber set up Amber Lights in Oxford to raise awareness of homelessness and the impact of addiction. Amber is an absolute superstar. And to top it off this week, she has just been awarded the British Empire Medal, which is absolutely fantastic. I really hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review. So hello, Amber. Welcome to my show, One for the Road. Um, this episode is going to be slightly different, but it's such an important subject. So I'm really, really grateful you've joined me today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I'm looking forward to this episode, but it's it's going to be very emotional to give people the heads up. And I'm really grateful that you have come on to share your story. Shall we start right in the beginning? Um, what it was like for you growing up and your sister Hannah as well? Yeah, let's go straight in. So um. Hannah was 16 years older than me. Uh, She was from my mum's first marriage, uh, but she moved in with me, my mum and my dad from maybe I was about four or five. She moved in with us. Um, So it was a lovely little unit of four um, and a lovely sort of permanent fixture. Obviously, being very much younger than her, I terrorised her completely. Um, There's actually a picture of her trying to sunbathe and I'm sat on top of her with a water pistol. (laughs) That goes to show. But as we grew up, she was just that permanent fixture in my life. Uh, She was there every Christmas day. Uh, She just, she was just always there. And she moved out roughly when I was eight years old. And I remember when we dropped her over to her flat, I was crying because I didn't want her to move out. And she said, it's all right, we'll say night night to each other at 8pm every night. And I remember going home and it hit eight o'clock at night and I looked at the clock and I was like, night, night. And I carried this out for years and years and years. Um, But Hannah having her own place meant that I could go over for sleepovers, which are absolutely fantastic as well. Um, But um, we've always remained very close. And in 2009, my dad passed away when I was 14. And that sort of cemented our relationship, even made it even stronger uh, she sort of stepped up in the sort of sense that she became another parent. So she supported my mum a lot, um, kept things afloat. She also came to a lot of the parents' evenings. And obviously at that age as well, you're hormo- hormonal, everything's going on. Um, and not having my dad, it, it was really, really difficult. I was probably a bit of a daddy's girl, if I'm honest, as well. <laughs> but I can't remember a time when I was struggling and she wasn't there. She was always there and she had these famous lines that she'd go, who is it? Who's upset you? I'll break their legs. Um, and it's something I still think of now when someone's maybe like upset me or upset. I'm like, it's all right. Hannah will sort it for me. Um, but there was just this, I can never describe it, just this bond 
between us. And the laughs we used to have, I don't think anyone could make me laugh like that. And the pranks we used to pull on each other, uh, it was just, when I look back, it was such a happy childhood. Like I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. She was just so much fun to be around and yeah, just a brilliant person. Sounds like your rock. Yeah, she was. She was. And there was lots of things that maybe sort of thought, oh, I don't want to tell mum because I don't want, you know, to upset mum or put anything on mum's plate. So I'd go to Hannah and, you know, there was, there was, we did everything, like everything together. Obviously at times being sisters, you fight and stuff. But I remember a lot of our summers we spent sitting in the conservatory at mum's and we were just laughing. There was just so much laughter and we were out with the dogs walking. And it was even in the midst of losing my dad, she was this sort of permanent fixture that was always there. And yeah, I just, I can't describe it. She was just, she was just something else. She was great fun. Yeah. Sounds like it. So with the sleepovers as well. So did you ever notice anything different? Um, I always knew she liked a glass of wine mm. um, and she always struggled with her eating as well. So sort of when we'd have sleepovers, I'd be really excited because we'd get cakes, we'd get crisps and it's like a child's dream. But Hannah would never really have a dinner. She'd have a few crisps or some cream crackers and that would be it. Um, and then there'd be like a glass of wine or a bottle of wine sort of on the side. Um, and I was all sort of aware. So sometimes on Saturday nights, especially if it was one of our birthdays, if it was my dad's birthday, he'd always like to get a Chinese. Uh, so we'd get a Chinese in, we'd all sit round. Uh, Hannah would bring over a bottle of wine. Um, my mum can have a glass of wine. She gets a headache. So she's straight out. She just she doesn't touch it. Hannah would have the glass, ask mum if she wanted any more. And then she'd be like, no, I don't want any Hannah. And then it'd be like, oh, sorry, I'll finish it off then. So I sort of started to notice that there was like white wine was always a theme and it always cropped up at certain things. Um, But obviously sort of there was so much going on at the time. And then she started studying her degree that you didn't really notice it as much because she was busy with that. But when she was with us on a Saturday night and staying over or or if I was at a sleepover, there was always some bottle um, in the corner somewhere. And remind us how old you were then. Sleepovers were probably from 10 and then, yeah, 10, 10 onwards. And then when my dad died at 14 and then it seemed to get more intense after I was 14. And um, I remember when I was 16, 17, I was out for like New Year's Eve with my college friends and um, Hannah kept trying to ring me but ring me, ring me relentlessly, relentlessly. And I kept leaving all these voicemails and she was with my mum. And when I got back, my mum actually said that Hannah had drunk so much, she was actually frightened of her. And it was the first sort of time I thought, oh, um, yeah. you know, um, uh, should I have been there? Like what's going on? Like has, you know, should she just get too drunk and not know what was going on? Um, but I remember my mum saying she did feel very, very uncomfortable at that point and probably around, say, when I was at college, it become more enhanced and I started noticing a lot more. And and what was your relationship with alcohol like at the time? Was you like your mum? Yeah, I've never really been bothered by it. Um, I just, I've had a very strange relationship with alcohol and I have gone um, sober now on the 9th of April. Um, and I just, I could just never be bothered with it. I didn't like the hangover. Um, I just, there was just nothing about it. So you'd sort of think at 16, 17 away from my mum's, I'd be like, yeah, like some teenagers do, but I just, 
I just like my orange juice. Um, and maybe it was aware of the white wine and that wine being there and seeing like how it could change. Maybe that had some form of impact. But no, I've never been that bothered by it. Well, firstly, congratulations as well on uh, going sober. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that later. So that was the real first sign maybe that things were changing um, for your sister and also your mum being aware and saying that she was quite frightened by seeing that because it can be scary seeing someone drunk, you know. So what happened after that? So when I was at, so that was when I was at college, um, my mum, um, Diamond, she used to pick me up from the college bus every day and take me there to get it. Um, and it was in the town where Hannah lived. And sometimes when I'd get off the college bus, it was five o'clock uh, and I'd start noticing Hannah was there and mum was meeting her. So I'd be like, oh, what's going on? What's sort of happening? Uh, and Hannah was sort of struggling with her mortgage at that point. So mum was taking out money to help her pay for her mortgage. Uh, and at the same time, I had a part time job um, in our supermarket down the road. And I used to work Friday night shift and Saturday morning. Um, and I started noticing that Hannah was buying bottles of wine. And in my head, I was like, how can you be buying bottles of wine if you can't afford your mortgage? Mm. And I actually, when I look back, I subconsciously picked a till that looked down the alcohol aisle, specifically the wine aisle, because I was like, I wonder if I'm going to catch her. Because I think she sort of caught on and she started going to other tills. So she'd go to the tills behind me so I couldn't see her. But I was like, I'm just going to see. And it was always four or five bottles of wine. And I'd come home and I'd be like, mum, I saw Hannah buying four or five bottles of wine and I was like that's I said she can't be drinking all that herself surely like like mum gets a headache after one glass of wine so why does she need that amount and this sort of like continued on and on and I remember there was one Christmas Eve where it it was all it was it was awful when I look back and we were we'd all gone to bed Hannah was staying over and we had port in the house and Hannah always liked port and lemonade and it was quite late and we kept hearing because we're in a bungalow. We kept hearing like rustling to the kitchen, and it was like the dogs were sort of whinging and stuff. And Mum sort of went out to see what was going on. And Hannah was drinking port, and it was like midnight, and going and getting like a glass of port and going back to her room. And Mum was like, "What are you doing? You know what, what what's going on?" And her phone was going off, and there was all this stuff going on. And I remember them starting to like shout at each other. So Christmas Day when we woke up, there was just this tension in the house. It, it was. And I remember laying there on Christmas Eve in bed thinking, I wish my dad was here because perhaps if my dad was here, this wouldn't be happening. And these things started to happen where it created this real divide between us. And I was obviously growing up, I was getting more of a probably a grumpy teenager back then. Uh, so it was probably uncool to be around Hannah as much. But Hannah sort of, sort of stemmed off in a different direction um, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But I remember that evening and I remember crying in my bed wishing that my dad was there and not understanding what was going on. Oh, darling, that sounds really <laughs> difficult for you. You know, and Christmas Day as well, and it it's hard, isn't it? Because I, I, I'm sort of hearing it from Hannah's perspective of the constant topping up. Yeah. If there was no more wine left, and, you know, I've heard of stories of people going into the ouzo and topping it up with water and it goes cloudy and you're caught out so you end up drinking the lot you know like all these little things we do to get our next hit you know so i i can sort of hear it from both sides 
you know it's it's really a difficult thing to hear yeah and I, you used to say to him like why why do you need that yeah. why, why do you need that and you know and then it was like oh, I'll just finish the bottle you know and it had the bottle had to finish by the evening was out it couldn't be left uh to the next day it, it always it always had to be finished and I think that was 2013 Christmas Eve that poor incident and I was I just I couldn't get over it and I just thought it's midnight why do you need port at midnight yeah I I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it it was completely bizarre well because you were not a drinker yeah you know, it's like me when I see people betting their wages on a horse and it's like, why would you do that? Like, Or they win 100 quid and then put that on the next one and lose it again. Like, because I'm not a gambler, I don't understand it. So I think you're probably coming from that way with you is that, you know, why do you need to drink port? Well, that's all that was left in the house. And, you know, until you pass out, nothing's enough. Do you know what I mean? No, and then on Christmas Day, I always used to, we always used to get a stock in each, even when Hannah was in her 30s. And I remember a child, I used to run in, dive on her bed, wake her up, like, we've got our stockings. And I remember that Christmas. I know I was, I think, maybe 18, 19 at that point, but I still enjoyed going into her because it felt like a routine that was associated to my dad when he was there on Christmas Day. And I didn't go into her and we stayed away. And she didn't speak to her. So then I remember sat with mum and I was like, is this, is this what it is now? Is this how things are changing? Yeah, it's, it's sad, isn't it? So keep going then with the story. How did that manifest out? She, she started in a relationship around that point. And I think for me, everything with that relationship, it started to change. And at first we were like, brilliant. This is probably what she needs. You know, she finished her degree at that point as well. Um, we'd had a couple more bereavements during that period as well. So there was lots of emotion as well, but things sort of looked positive. She had a degree. She had um, this partner come into her life and we were like, oh, finally, something is going right for Hannah. Like she completely deserves it. And um, she just become very, very distant. And she was always so close to me and my mum. They'd always go out on shopping trips. Um, and I remember I used to stay at home with my dad and play on his motorbike uh, because I didn't want to go shopping um, and rather climb trees but I remember you know we always had such a great relationship but it seemed to become distant and um, Hannah sort of didn't really like answer any of our calls Um, nothing was going on we couldn't really get hold of her and um, mum was like why don't you just pop round and see her and this was about summer 2014 And I popped around to her flat and she used to have like these beautiful curtains up on the front door, like the glass door, and they were gone. And I managed to open that and then it got to this wooden door and there was the letterbox. And I was like, oh, just like see if I can see through or knock on something. And I looked through and it was completely empty. The flat was completely empty, like where I could see where her bed was or like anything. It was it was completely all gone. And I rang mum. I was like, it's nothing there. She's gone. Like, What's going on? And she hadn't been asking for any money for quite a while at that point. And um, we actually ended up Googling her address. And I didn't know this at the time, but when someone is repossessed, uh, when they come in, they put yellow tape over like the sink or the toilet and it's got do not use. And um, we found these images and it had like do not use and all this sort of stuff blocked off. And one of my friends like Googled it for me because I was talking to them about it. And me and mum were chatting away what it could be. And mum was like, is she being repossessed? And we were like, no, no. 
And um, my friend messaged me, she was, they were like, Amber, this is repossession tape. This probably means Hannah's being repossessed. And then we didn't know where she was. Like, potentially she'd been repossessed. All her belongings have gone and we didn't know where she was. So we popped round to her partner's house and she'd moved in there. Um, and we ended up having a bit of an argument, me and Hannah, because I was like, why didn't you tell us what is going on? And I remember it was half 11 in the morning and she was still in her pyjamas. And that may not seem like, might seem a lazy morning to some, but Hannah was always very pristine. Like she would be in her pyjamas, but then she'd want to get ready. She'd have her hair nicely done. She'd have her makeup done. And I was like, what, what is going on? Like, why aren't you talking to us? And we sort of had a bit of a scuffle and left. And we were like, okay, things have obviously gone wrong, but at least she's got somewhere to to live. And this sort of went on for the next year. And Hannah sent me some really like nasty texts at some point. And it, it wasn't like Hannah, like Hannah would never say those things. And I got really angry, angry and argued back with her. And for me at that point, I sort of went, do you know what? I'm not talking to you. I'm done. I'm done. Like, you know, how can you say those things to me after everything we've been through? And then part of me was like, was she drunk when she said that? Yeah. Did that play into it? But I was still like, nah, I'm, I'm not having any of this. I don't, I don't want um, to talk to you if that's how you're going to treat me. So we became very, very distant from summer 2014 to about November 2015. And I remember coming home from work and mum had said about basically she'd been around to see Hannah and she'd realised what had been going on and the extent of the drinking. Uh, and Hannah had sort of openly admitted that she'd been drinking. She'd lost her jobs. Um, any job she held down, she was losing. Uh, she was still living with her partner but the extent of the drinking started to come to light. And I remember every night after that, Hannah would ring constantly wanting to talk to mum, wanting to talk to mum. And I remember one, one night mum was like, I'm too tired. I'm too tired to talk to her tonight because these phone calls could go on for hours sometimes. And I took the phone and I just said to Hannah, you know, mum's really tired. You know, can we speak tomorrow? And Hannah was crying and sort of saying all these different things and I was like I promise we will we will talk to you and we'll come and see you um but just please let mum rest um but I found like and which I noticed throughout when we got more sort of involved with Hannah was she was constantly repeating herself all the time and I felt like I was I'd already said this but I just had to sit there on the phone until she'd finally sort of accepted it that mum was mum had to go to bed and um I think one of the points for me was is a month later. Uh, so where I worked at the time, um, it was all to do with sort of like exploring like accidents and car accidents and stuff. And um, there'd been a drink drive accident where I worked. And I don't know what went in my head, but I sat there and I thought, thank God that Hannah hasn't, Hannah hasn't done this. Like, you know, she hasn't been caught. Got home from work that day. Mum, Hannah's been pulled over for drink driving. And I was like, you're joking because this is the same day yeah. that I've been at work with it and obviously Christmas lead up and she'd been pulled over about 11 o'clock in the morning and she was four times over the limit um, and then she was obviously arrested she was taken to the cells and then the next minute she had a seizure because she didn't have the drink and the alcohol in her what? so she ended up in hospital and that was when we, me and mum looked at each other and we were like shit you know what, what 
how can she just have a seizure for not drinking? You know, what, what, what on earth is going on? And it transpired that Hannah was on 40 units a day. Um, and when I look back, four bottles of wine that she used to buy in co-op. Um, and it was that point where if she stopped drinking, she'd have a seizure and it could kill her. But if she continued to drink, it could kill her. Yeah. And that Christmas, December 2015, probably one of the worst Christmases, <laughs> um, she left her partner. So she was homeless. She didn't have anywhere to go. Um, we were advised multiple times that we couldn't take her in. Uh, the extent of her drinking, she could put us at harm um, and that she needed to reach rock bottom. And I remember thinking, what the hell is rock bottom? Like, what is it? Because What's surely, worse than this? Yeah. And I, I thought, I was like, but this is it. This is it. And they were like, no, she was like, she'll carry on for a while. And they were like, this may be rock bottom to you, but it's not rock bottom to her yet. And I remember over Christmas, I know it was, I'm sure it was Boxing Day when I look back, Hannah was ringing us and she was crying, saying she wanted to come home. And I was saying, I can't, I can't come and get you. I'm, I'm really, really sorry. And she was sort of sending me messages going, it's really cold out on the streets. And I'm like, I'm so, I'm so sorry, I can't come and get you. And she finished the phone call with me and then she messaged me going, it's easier if I just die. And then she was like, I love you, always remember that. And I couldn't get hold of it. And I was sat there with my mum and I was like, have I, have I caused her to go and think that she needs to end her life? And then has she done that? Or where is she? Like, is she going to be on the side of the street? And we were ringing and ringing because we had no idea she could say she'd be somewhere, but then she'd be somewhere else. And then eventually we managed to get hold of her and talk to her. But I, I remember in those few hours, it was just this state of panic. And I was thinking, is is this me? Is this, should I, you know, should we have taken her in? And I was conflicted because I felt awful inside because all I wanted to do was take her in and look after her. And then you've got her begging you to come home. And then you've got the professionals going, no, you can't, you can't because to support an addict, you have to be strong enough to look after them and, and support yourself first. And it's all about boundaries. So there was me. And I was like, if I deal with it, mum doesn't have to say no to her. And I'm not putting mum in a position where she has to say no to her child. So if I take the hit and if I take it, then it might be easier. I, and I just, and I look back, I don't know. I don't know how I processed it. I, I don't I, know how. I, I was just going to ask you, did these so-called professionals actually offer any support for you on how to deal with that? No, no. no. And I found I found that a lot that, you would get told how to support the addict or how to support in certain ways. But when it came to me and my mum and our family, there was nothing. And I remember ringing so many phone calls and someone said to me, we don't support the loved ones. I'm really sorry. We, we wish you the best. And I was crying down the phone to them saying, what can I do? And they were like, we're really sorry. We can't help you. Oh my God. That's just hideous, isn't it? It was such a young age as well. I was, yeah. I was my 22 at the time as well yeah. and it really started to go 21 22 um and all my other friends were going out <laughs> going to university and and then I was sat there trying to convince Hannah not to you know harm herself and you took quite a lot of that responsibility before that as well because as soon as you started to realize that she she had a real problem with it it becomes a kind of responsibility because you were so close right yeah and I felt that she'd looked after me 
and now the tables have turned and that I have to look after her. And I remember um, she was saying about money and stuff before any of this. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's have a look at your online banking. Like maybe we can see what's going on. You know, we could, you know, help you budget. And she just, she just refused. And then we argued and it was, this, we'd reach a point with her and it was obviously me pushing her too far because it was like, I could be found out. So you'd get this reaction off. Her. Yeah. You become defensive, don't you? Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, can I ask as well, and this being be nosy, you know the partner that she met, did, was he a drinker as well? I don't know if he was a drinker, but I think there was a lot of um, like people that used to go around that used to drink as well. So it was it was heavily in the house, and I think potentially that was the catalyst of it. Yeah, enabling, a lot yeah. of enabling going on. Yeah, yeah. And I think there were comments about thrown by the partner at times saying Hannah's drinking a lot, but wouldn't diverse any more information or like tell us about it anymore. But yeah, so I think I think it definitely got more enhanced. And like at mum's, because I was living there, there was no alcohol in the house. I think there was a bottle of Tia Maria and that was it. There was never anything really here. And being in a village as well where we were, there was nothing easy access either. So when you got to talk to her, what did you say? And did anything change there or, or did you still stick to these boundaries? I think we stuck, we never took Hannah back in. So we stuck to those boundaries and I still was really hurt by what she'd said previously, but I was putting it aside and we'd sort of sit and talk. But from about that Christmas till April, it was so unsettled because we'd get her into places and then she'd just be out of them. And she stayed in a lot of hotels over Christmas Um that we'd managed to get her into and then we managed to get her into a women's shelter and we drove her up there and we were chatting to her and having these conversations and silly fun conversations because as soon as you tried to broach you know the the topic of what was going on it was like shut down and then it would get angry and she wouldn't do anything and I remember we took her up there and she realized where she was and that we had to leave her and I gave her a hug and she told me she loved me. And me and Hannah, I never said I loved you back. I just said, oh, I think you smell too. And it was something I've done from a child. Yeah. And I remember saying that to her and she sort of like, just gave me this look of like, we're coming back. You know, I don't, maybe you shouldn't feel as alone or maybe, you know, but it felt like this little step in our relationship coming back together. But I don't really think I ever had the opportunity to, properly sit down and talk to her because it was always so intense if you know she needed to get to an appointment um I remember I had to take her to a doctor's appointment because we had to start getting like doctor's notes because she was diagnosed with severe depression and then alcohol anxiety um and I was checking her bags uh because she asked me to get some tops out for her and I opened this big bag and there was like five bottles of wine in it and I thought do I do I say or do I just get her a tops because yeah. I need her to get to that appointment. Yeah. Do I need to start this argument right now? Or do I just get her a tops, help her get ready and take her to this appointment? Because as much as I want to tip that alcohol away, if I tip it away, she's going to go and find it. She's yeah. going to go and get it. Is it going to put her at more issues to go out there and be like, oh, I've now got to get more alcohol. And she could have had a seizure as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, no, I've, I've just got to leave her. I'm just not going to say anything going to cover it over and I do remember uh she had a water bottle and I did taste it because I thought it was vodka but it was water but that was how my mind was going yeah suspicious yeah 
Yeah. And um, she eventually um, got to another hostel in Chipping Norton and me and my mum started going in and having coffee with her. And mum was doing that every week, um, going and seeing her and having coffee. And um, she never, never talked, never talked about anything. It was always what else was going on, like a distraction. And then eventually she said that she had to be moved to Oxford because there were more facilities and there was better support there for her to sort of not only just house her, but help in her recovery. And they got her to uh, Simon House in Oxford and she decided that she was going to refuse to stay there, stop drinking to prove a point and smashed her face in as she had a seizure uh, and ended up in hospital. And we went to see her and that was in the April 2016. And we went up and Hannah was always like a very broad woman, like broad shoulders, like brilliant figure, like, you know, busty sort of woman, so to speak. And um, we saw her in this hospital bed and she was like a skeleton. She was just, and I'd seen her previously, but obviously in clothes and big coats, but to see her in this little hospital gown and her face where she hit her side of her face, it was all swollen. She couldn't see out of her eye. And it was just, it it was hard, it was hard, heartbreaking to see. And I just thought, how how have we got here? And mum went and sat with her, and I went to the nurses, and I said, she's not like this. She's she wants to become a teacher. She's she wants a cottage with a chocolate Labrador. She, that's not Hannah. That's that's someone else. Like, what is what has happened? And we just sat with her and. She was telling us that she was just going to walk into the woods and she was going to do this. And I just thought, I, I just I just sat there and I just thought, what has happened? How have we gone from laughing ourselves silly in, in the sofa in the conservatory to sitting here at her bedside where she's not able to sort of comprehend what is going on around her? And I, and I, I come away and I just thought, you know, after everything we've been through as a family is, you know, losing my dad, everything. Why why do we deserve this? What, what have we done wrong to, to have this on us? Um, and I just, I can still see her face. I can still see her. I can still see her in the hospital bed and I can still see her face. And she just looked just so, so desperate. Broken. It, was, it was so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Completely broken. Yeah. And and that's the thing though, Amber, it's speaking from experience, alcohol stripped me of so much, you know, and by the sounds of it, you know, where she became homeless, you put your boundaries in place. She probably felt a sense of rejection there. She didn't understand it, but you were going by the professional advice you've been given. It's so layered, isn't it? To be left with that vision, I remember when my mum, she fell and hit her head and I went to see her in hospital and I experienced exactly the same. She was like a skeleton and I didn't even know it was her when I walked in the ward. I was like, where's my mum? And she was laying there like a skeleton and and it stays with you, doesn't it? Yeah. And Hannah, um, she was just an extremely, extremely caring person. She's brilliant. And, but she'd taken a dislike to the person opposite her bed and she started and it was just this just this old woman in her bed and she started like shouting across the room at her and I was like Hannah no like why are you doing that like you 
the, the old Hannah we knew would probably be going over and sat at her bedside and offering her a glass of water and chatting away. And I was like, what, what are you doing? You know, you, you can't act like this. And I was like, when, when did I turn into a parent and Hannah turn into a toddler? Yeah. Where I'm saying, no, you, you can't, you can't do this. She'd lost everything, hadn't she, by that yeah. point? Yeah. And we're obviously trying our best. And then when you look back, I sort of think, could you have done this? Could you have done that? But we were so new into the situation. And it wasn't this drinking that we'd been aware of for such a long time. It was like slap bang in your face. Here it yeah. is. Yeah. Get on with it. And you had no support to help no. you with that either, to understand it or to help you and your mum deal with your own emotions going through this as well. No, and we, we were just we were just at home and I was, uh, mum was retired by that point, but I was trying to go to work and trying to live my life and keep everything going. And I remember there were so many times when I was at work and I'd get a phone call from the police, I'd get a phone call from the hospital, my phone would go and I'd be, I'd, I'd have, I'd just have to put my phone away because I thought every time it vibrated or notification went off, I was like, I can't look at this because I don't know what it is. Yeah. And I've got like messages and they're still on my phone now. And where I'd wake up in the morning and Hannah would just write, I had a paste in tonight when she was on the streets. And then I'd be like, what do, what do you mean? What, what are you okay? And all I'd get back was someone hit me. And I'd be like, who hit you? Why did they hit you? Where are you? And then I didn't get a reply for six hours later. And she was like, it doesn't matter. Oh my God. And like the anxiety yeah. of that. And then having my phone next to my bed. Um, Hyper and alert it. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you never knew. And I remember coming back from a um, work event and I got a phone call and it was social services. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm 22. I'm, oh I, I don't, I don't know what God. to say or what, what to, how to help or, you know, I'll, I'll go back. I'll go talk it through with my family. We'll, we'll see what we can do. But I was, I was completely lost. Mm. I completely, completely lost in it all. So the hospital bed. What happened after that? So we managed to convince her to um, move to Simon House in Oxford. And we said that we'd got all her stuff and that we'd move it there. And we put in loads of like photos of us all. And, that, you know, we'd do her room up and get it all sorted. Um, so she did move there. But unfortunately, with Simon House at the time, you had to have a key worker and you had to sort out... Um, getting like sort of so many amount of benefits and then those benefits would pay for like your room to sort of get people into the routine of having to be in a bit more structure having to pay their way uh, and Hannah just wouldn't get on board at that point um anything we tried to do to convince her no wasn't happening wasn't happening and I remember it was my birthday in July that year and she rang up and she was somewhere in Oxford it's like something going on like music and stuff playing she was chatting away and I was like you're all right you know blah 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 she's like yeah I've been evicted I'm I'm out I'm on the streets I was like oh why why they didn't want me and then it when you looked into it it was because she wasn't paying away but it was always this sort of blase approach of well you know this and I was like well where are you gonna stay what what are you gonna do like you know oh I've got a tent well where have you got a tent Oh, I've just put it in the park. I was like, you, you can't stay in the tent. We, we've got to get you somewhere. And then she's like, oh, it's all right. See ya. Happy birthday. And <laughs> you try to ring her back and nothing. And you're like, it was just constant, like these, just her dropping things 
and then you were there like what holding the ball yeah Yeah. what do we do and there were periods during those few months where we'd go in and try and see her and she wouldn't turn up and I remember we couldn't get hold of her because she started using um services at O'Hanlon House which is part of homeless Oxfordshire so she started using the day services there and she managed to ring us a few times and we rang up one time they were like no we haven't seen her in like a few days like she was always in you know getting getting her shower getting her clothes sorted having a bit of lunch or whatever and they hadn't seen her and this continued for a few days and I remember going in with my mum and one of my friends and we walked around Oxford for four hours trying to find her and we couldn't find her and we were just chasing our tails and in the end we had to give up because my mum was in her late 60s at that point and and the physical and the emotional toll of trying to find her and we were asking people and then people started saying that they owed her money and then they wanted money off us so then we were putting ourselves in these situations so we had to get out and we just come back and we were like where is she you know how can you just possibly disappear when potentially she had no money you know she's here somewhere but where is she and and then the next day she had come back and it turned out she'd just been keeping low for a while because of this money situation and that people wanted money off her so she'd been staying in a tent but what I thought was not normal was normal to Hannah so Hannah would have bottle of wine for breakfast before coming to see us and then be late when she was staying when she eventually got her room in O'Hanlon house and I was like that that's not normal to me but this is normal to her and she'd chat to her partner at the time going yeah he bought me a bottle of wine for breakfast and I was like yeah. how like so how she lost that? all sense of of yeah. reality didn't she like it, yeah one day blurred into the next yeah and then I'd be like I've got to go I've got to go to work I've got this and she'd be like well no and I'd be like I have to because I'm in this time structure yeah and like you say it just reality had just gone yeah um but thankfully in October 2016 she did get a proper room there because she was asthmatic as well she always had been so we had to sort of put in and try get a sort of an urgent room in there um and she did get housed in there but because her partner wasn't in there and he was sleeping out, sometimes she'd still try and sleep out on the streets and you had to try and get through to her that she had to stay in this room for her for her own health because, you know, the addiction aside, she was severely asthmatic yeah. and being out in the freezing winter could set her chest off and she could have an asthma attack. So it was, it, it was trying to get her to remember all these other things like of health that just didn't seem to like come into her world anymore. God, this is a difficult conversation, Amber. You know, I imagine there's going to be a lot of tissues listening to this episode. So that was 2016. Go on. So um, the December 2016, we went into her on Boxing Day and she'd had like a, she'd been ringing us on the Christmas day and she'd been really, really upset. So O'Hanlon House had put on a Christmas dinner, got them presents and it was like, you know, really putting on an effort, but she didn't want to be part of it. And she stunk a booze like it was in her clothes and I've never I've never smelt something like it and I remember like I went to hug her and it was like a wall and if I could close my eyes now and sniff I could probably still smell it it was just so intense and remember we bought her um uh, a nice coat and boots um because we never gave her money because 
we didn't know where she'd spend it. So we would buy her things, we'd buy her toiletries or take in things for her. So, you know, she was kept warm and got what she needed. Um, but we weren't sort of facilitating her going and buying any alcohol. Um, so we moved into 2017. And then in the March, she moved back to Simon House because she sort of reached the top point of O'Hanlon House. And then it was like, oh, you can move across there now because you're more established. And I think from March, we started to see more of Hannah a bit more. She started turning up as Hannah. Um, she started turning up on time. She was more interested in conversation. It wasn't just feeling like she had to turn up. And um, I'd split with my ex-partner at the Christmas as well. And I remember she was holding my hand and she was like, why didn't you tell me? And I just said, you know, I, I didn't want to trouble her. I didn't want this. And she held my hand and she was like, I'm always here for you. Like, you know, you come in and see me any time. And it was, I think it took to that moment for us both to go, maybe we're, we're, we're coming back. Maybe Hannah's coming back round. And we sort of continued to see her like throughout April and then it got to May, mum's birthday, and she got mum like a couple of nice little presents and stuff. And we did that. And then we went in to see her on the late May bank holiday on the Monday. And Hannah really wanted to have her um, photo album and have a look through it. So we um, sat on the benches, the three of us together, and we were looking through all these old photos, um, taking the mick out of each other, having a laugh looking at all the different sort of things we used to do. And it was a lovely day. It was normal. It was completely normal. And we went and bought her some sparkly sandals so she could have um, sandals for summer. And we just parted ways and we and we gave each other a hug. And it was like, me and mum walked away and we were like, it was not, it was like a really nice day. And when we got home, I remember mum going, but something isn't right. And I was like... She goes, I just have this, I just have this feeling something isn't right. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe it's just because, you know, she seems more like Hannah and maybe it's, you know, we're, we're getting somewhere and she'd been going to swimming classes. She'd been doing these little um, sort of empowerment courses. Um, and we were like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, just, just be positive. Um, and then four days later, she died. Um, she, her partner went into her room in the morning and she was having a seizure uh, which led to cardiac arrest and uh, by the time the paramedics got there there was nothing more they could do um, and I'm just thankful we saw her on the Monday and we had that that last day with her um, and everything we did afterwards getting her stuff and even the staff said on the Thursday night she just she seemed quiet like she just didn't seem Hannah um, and I don't know I just Part of me looks back and goes, did she know? Was this was this all part of her goodbye? Did she know? Or I don't know. And mother's intuition on my mum's side. But yeah, and I just, it, it was weird because she died. But then I thought, no one can hurt her anymore. And she can't hurt herself. And I know where she is. And she's safe and she's at peace. And I don't think she'd been at peace for a long, 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 long time. And that's probably the only way I deal with it now because she was only 38 um, when she dies. And I just, well, I just, I just can't, I, it's six years and a couple of weeks and I just don't know where the time's gone. And I don't know how I've sort of survived without her because she, she was just that rock yeah. to then gone. I, I, 
I feel so sad for you and your family. Um, what you say, there was part of you that felt a kind of relief. I can really hear that when Sarah Drage came onto my podcast and talked about her dad when he went, that mm. there was a relief there that he doesn't have to suffer anymore. And this is the responsibility you take on as a as someone who loves an addict, isn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, I watched the Matt Willis documentary the other night and Emma, you know, you could see the pain and the responsibility she had in caring for him, Yeah, you know? Um, and that's always a, a tough admission for someone, a member of the family or a loved one to admit to that, you know, there's a feeling of relief because the responsibility you've had from such a young age has been immense. Yeah. Um, and it just disappeared. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. And that's the difficult conversation, but it's honest. And I really appreciate your honesty there because it goes to prove what you've been through. And we could have many conversations around this area, maybe for another time. So she died at 38 years old, which is a tragedy. What came from that after that? I think for me, I was determined that this wasn't the end because I thought, no, like she's, she's not, she's not going to, she's gone, but she's not going to be forgotten. Like I was so determined and I think it opened my eyes up to addiction, to homelessness and also to, to the lack of support that we got um, as family. And I just thought, I wonder if there's a way that I can change this or do something about it. And I remember that six months after that Christmas, I did a collection for the homeless shelters, um, getting in toiletries and I did it all over work and I got 48 boxes full of stuff. And I just seemed to go on this mission. And I was like, I can't, I can't stop this what I was doing for Hannah and supporting her. I can't just let it go now. It's it's not over. And I went on to run half marathon um, and raise money that way. Um, so she must, I must have loved her because I wouldn't do that for anyone, anyone else. Um, but um, I went on to create Amber Lights in Oxford, which is like my little project and it supports homeless Oxfordshire. Um, and there's the different products that people can buy um, and it supports homeless Oxfordshire in Hannah's memory. And I just wanted to create a space to talk about Hannah's story, Hannah's situation, and to show people that they're not alone. And, you know, Hannah had a flat. She had a degree. You know, she wanted to become a teacher. She wanted a chocolate Labrador. And then this is what happened. So what's saying that this can't happen to anyone else? And, mm. you know, it was obviously the drinking that we were unaware of had creeped in and we found lots of notes after she died um where she said that something had happened so she started drinking and she wrote too hungover to go to work and we were like that's probably why she lost her job because this was creeping up and we sort of got more of a picture afterwards and I think for me I don't think I'll ever let this drop because Hannah deserved a whole lot more and maybe if there'd been better support in place for her better support in place for us she might still be here so I kind of want to use her memory to go forward and be like, this is Hannah's legacy. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting how you frame that when you you start talking about my little project. It's not, it's a huge project, uh, um, project and you should be so proud of yourself, Amber, because you're so you. humble and lovely. Honestly, everyone I've talked to say, oh, she's adorable. <laughs> 
No, they do, honestly. You know, I've just climbed that little hill in Morocco with Johnny Lawrence. And oh, I, know, I love Johnny. <laughs> yeah, well, he loves you too. And, you know, I think what you're doing is incredible. So, and how can the listeners find out about this? Oh, so I'm on uh, Amber Lights in Oxford on Instagram and um, I have some really cool clothing. <laughs> um, so I have Skyline clothing, which is the Oxford Skyline in day and night time. Um, and when someone purchases that, the profits support the welfare fund at Homeless Oxfordshire. Uh, we also have our handbags, which is the first thing we created named after Hannah. Um, and that's got the Oxford Skyline design on. And when someone purchases one of those, um, the money goes to purchase toiletries. And then we have our Pawsome clothing because Hannah loved dogs um, and she saw a lot of comfort off the dogs that were also at Homeless Oxfordshire. So um, when someone buys Pawsome clothing, uh, the money goes and supports the dogs um, who live with their humans at Homeless Oxfordshire. Oh, that's wonderful. That yeah, is so yeah. wonderful. It's such an amazing thing you're doing. And and how are you? Yeah, I'm, I think coming up to the anniversary, and as silly as it sounds, it's actually on the Friday this year. So I, I'm, I, I, I keep playing things through my head so I'll know that Monday the bank holiday was the last time I see her. And yeah. I've changed as a person. It, it has changed me, but I have to keep fighting for her because I'm sure if roles were reversed, she'd be doing the same for me. And yeah. she looked after me so well all that time and I just I don't want to give up on her. Oh, Amber, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing this this story. You know, it's it's hard to hear, but I think how you've dealt with it now and you've been amazing and I think people will absolutely love you on this podcast. And uh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a real joy, and it's it's helped me get to know you more as well. You know, we've done a live before and that, but I'm just sitting here with goosebumps throughout the whole thing, and I'm just so grateful that you've you've shared this with us all. And I'll put all your details on the show notes of this episode, and thank let's you. stay in touch. I'll see you, you on the seventeenth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be amazing. One of my my socials, and we can chat then. And continue to do what you're doing as well. You're fantastic. Thank you. And um, I'll see you then. See you soon. Bye, Amber. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.